0: Is, I've had people ask me in book reading, you're, you're, you're too discouraging for our young people. But it's, it's like racism, is permanent, you know, which I mean. I think that, that that telling the truth as you see it is never discouraging. It, it can be enlightening. Things have changed, but you're saying and, and it's removed, it hasn't, that's, that's and right. it can't. And if the things have taken taken different forms. It's not because all white people are evil or bad. It's because the system requires that there be this group, And in America, that's black women. I think I see a great deal of satisfaction and some degree of happiness in people who have determined to spend as much as they can on recognizing bad stuff and making it better. Welcome to the Space Traders Podcast. I'm Sean, and on this podcast, we're taking a look at some of the stories written by civil rights lawyer and activist, scholar, and professor, Dr. Derek Bell, and reflecting on his perspectives about racism in America. The main focus is just to get a better understanding of the views of one of the founders of critical race theory in a day when critical race theory is being widely misrepresented in our society. And so I'm neither a critical race theorist, a scholar, or an academic, But I think that Bell's views about race, history, and law in America are something that he believed everyone could understand and be informed about. So, if this is your first time listening, or if you haven't had a chance, go back, check out some of the first few episodes that we did on Dr. Derek Bell and two of his parables that we went through. On this episode... We're looking at Bell's Chronicle of the Constitutional Contradiction, a story that focuses on the origins of our nation during the drafting of the Constitution and how the founders' compromise on slavery paved the way for the perpetual sacrifice and subjugation of the rights of black people in America. About as long as America's been an independent nation, July 4th has always been one of the country's most celebrated holidays, until recently, or at least it feels that way. While it's still celebrated by most people who throw cookouts and watch fireworks shows or companies who hold big sales and people who dress up in red, white, and blue, another response to the holiday started gaining traction or rising to the surface of our cultural conversations. The response of many black Americans who, even though we've historically celebrated the holiday, feel somewhat distanced from it because of what our ancestors were doing on July 4, 1776. While our country was gaining its independence, there was a deep contradiction taking place because 20% of the young nation's population was enslaved with no real hope of freedom on the horizon. A popular meme's gone around the internet over the last few years during the week of July 4th, with a picture of enslaved black people picking cotton, and the capture over it reads, What Your Ancestors Were Doing on July 4th, 1776. And being shared right along with that is Frederick Douglass' famous speech from July 5th, 1852, titled, What to the Slave Is the Fourth of July? In the speech, Douglas acknowledged the Founders' commitment to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but he also called them out for their hypocrisy due to the institution of slavery in America, an institution that kept blacks from experiencing the blessings of freedom and national independence that the nation prided itself in. In some of the most pointed words from the speech, Douglas said this, I say it with a sad sense of the disparity between us. I am not included within the pale of glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you, this day, rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence, bequeathed by your fathers, is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought light and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This Fourth of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice, I must mourn. Again, these sentiments have been around as long as black people have lived in an independent America and they've caused many of us to look at our nation's founding documents like the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and ask the question, were these documents even written for us? To put it more pointedly, the conclusion for many is no, these documents weren't written with us in mind. The glaring contradiction of pinning the words, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The contradiction of Thomas Jefferson pinning these words about human equality while black people were subjugated to a racially-based institution of enslavement is either the worst kind of oversight, or by all men, he actually didn't mean all people. Or what about the Constitution's original language that black slaves wouldn't even be fully counted in the population for a state's representation? Or what about the fact that neither free or enslaved black citizens had any voice or contribution in these founding documents, especially concerning slavery? Even though our countries made significant efforts like ending the institution of slavery and acknowledging the God-given rights and humanity of black citizens in every area, Is it possible that the contradiction originally built into our nation's founding documents, one that significantly affected the rights and welfare of black people, could still shape the way black people exist in this nation today? That's one of the questions that Derrick Bell's Parable of the Constitutional Contradiction looks to answer, and it does so in what I think is a really dope scenario. Imagine that a black woman was teleported back in time to the room where the all-white male constitutional delegates met, and there she attempted to persuade this group of property-owning white men about the realities and consequences their compromise would create in the future of this nation that they hope to establish. Would they change their minds? Would they double down in their pursuit for national independence? Well, all these questions are answered in the story. So, I'll give an overview of the story, followed by some reflections. But if you want to read the full story, then there's a PDF of it at thespacetraderspod.com, along with some of Bell's own reflections on it. We'll be back in a minute with the chronicle of the constitutional contradiction. So here's how the story goes, Geneva Crenshaw, the supernatural lawyer prophet and friend of Derek Bell recounts her experience of traveling back in time where she ends up standing behind the podium at the Constitutional Convention of 1787. The room contained about three dozen young and vigorous delegates, all white men, who had been meeting all day in, in intense discussions. As you can imagine, the presence of a tall black woman in this room was not only a shock but an affront to this closed off meeting. Geneva introduces herself as being someone from the late 20th century who's been sent to test whether their decisions in making the Constitution would be altered if they knew the disastrous effects they'd have on the nation and its people in generations to come. The room stood shocked and silent, before erupting in a loud explosion of angry shouts and commotion. Eject the negro woman, they exclaimed. Several men rushed the podium where Geneva stood, but were met by a powerful cylinder of light surrounding her that was composed of red, white, and blue beams that electrocuted all who attempted to press through it. Several men tried to escape and get help from outside of the room, but couldn't as the doors and the windows were locked, preventing them from leaving. Finally, one delegate pulled out his pistol and shot at Geneva and the light force surrounding her, the bullet ricocheting off the beams and hitting an inkwell of red ink instead. The room eventually came to a silence, and Geneva proceeded to speak again, beginning her mission of persuading the delegates. She started off by cleverly invoking the name of a fellow patriot and colleague of these men, Thomas Jefferson, who, concerning the present slavery of their day, frowned on it and even believed God's judgment would come against it, even though he himself was a slave owner. Geneva highlighted that in the Declaration of Independence, Jefferson wrote that all men were created equal, yet contrarily remained unconvinced that blacks were equal to whites. From there, she spoke of the nation's future, one where slavery would expand and eventually, along with the industrial changes in the nation, the states would be at enmity with each other, resulting in an all-out war, a war that wouldn't necessarily solve the issues, but would create a lasting division in the country, even 250 years later. The stark truth, Geneva stated, is that the racial grief that persists today originated in the slavery institutionalized in the document you are drafting. Is this gentlemen, she says, an achievement for which you wish to be remembered? The delegates offer their response, telling Ms. Crenshaw that they've already discussed the matter of slavery at length, and the matter's been settled. When it comes to slavery, while some of them sympathize with ending it and others resist, compromises have been made. And Geneva argues that their compromises won't solve the issue of slavery, but more than anything, in their compromises, these delegates would embrace a contradiction, a contradiction between their words and their deeds. How so? Because in a document committed to establishing a nation that prioritizes human rights, these men would end up prioritizing property over the rights of certain humans, namely African people the delegates responded by claiming that one of the fundamental purposes of government was to protect property and in this case slaves were property that needed protection this pointed largely to the interests of the southern states who wanted to ensure that their slaves wouldn't be taken from them and Geneva proceeds to call this out she says the southern delegates have demanded the slavery compromises as their absolute precondition to forming a new government and this was no surprise to any of the delegates in the room one of them quoted two fellow delegates, Charles Coatsworth Pickney and his cousin, Governor Charles Pickney from South Carolina, who both made it clear that slaves were a necessary part of the economy in South Carolina and Georgia, and blacks were those slaves. But, as one more delegate pointed out, slavery didn't only benefit the South, it also benefited the Northern states as well. And so here's this room full of constitutional delegates actually acknowledging that the human rights of certain people in their country aren't being prioritized, particularly enslaved Africans whose rights would come second to the interests of protecting them as property. Geneva continues by pointing out the inconsistency of the situation, stating, Are you not concerned with the basic contradiction in your position, that you, who have gathered here in Philadelphia from each state in the Confederacy, in fact represent and constitute major property holders? Do you not mind that your slogans of liberty and individual rights are basically guarantees that neither a strong government nor the masses will be able to interfere with your property rights and those of your class? This contradiction between what you espouse and what you here protect will be held against you by future citizens of this nation. There won't be a nation if we don't make this compromise, the delegates respond, because at this time the country as they knew it was on the verge of either anarchy or bankruptcy due to debt and tensions after the revolution. While acknowledging the condition of crisis that the country was in, but still not letting them off the hook for their compromise on slavery, Geneva gets interrupted by none other than the president of the convention, George Washington, who proclaims that he's ready to embrace any kind of compromise that keeps the country from ruin. Geneva respectfully acknowledges Washington, a slave owner, who himself opposed slavery by pointing out that he said little in these meetings in an effort to not sway the debate and that if he did voice his opinions on slavery, he'd lose the southern delegates and destroy any hope of the country being formed. Reminding the delegates again that their seeking to obtain unity in this convention meant the sacrificing of black rights and freedoms, a pattern that would become difficult to break in the nation's subsequent history, Geneva gets interrupted again, this time by James Madison, who, like Washington, believes that the compromises made are in the best interest of the people of the nation and that they had taken seriously the voices opposed to slavery. A Massachusetts delegate then references the words of Delegate Governor Morris of Pennsylvania, who called out the irony and inconsistency of Southern slaveholders who damned Africans into cruel bondage as being the same people who have more votes in a government instituted for the protection of the rights of mankind than citizens of Northern states who oppose slavery. Geneva then calls out the hesitancy of the Northern states in addressing the South's insistence on maintaining slavery. A delegate responds, saying that this was because the North profited from slavery as much as the South did, especially during the time of the Revolutionary War. The wealth produced from slavery is what made the country's independence possible. It's what presently sustained the nation's economy, and without slavery, the Constitution wouldn't be anything more than a useless document, according to the delegate. Even though in this convention these delegates were trying to hide behind their justifications and oppositions for slavery's presence in the American economy, Geneva pierces through their hollow arguments by showing how their constitution would actually make at least ten different provisions for protecting slavery even though it never used the word slave or slavery. Recognizing the evil of slavery was one thing, but building provisions for it in a document committed to human rights is another thing altogether. At this point, the delegates were growing increasingly irritated and impatient with Miss Crenshaw. Things were now coming to a head. The pointedness of Geneva's rhetoric was now moving them to denounce her on the basis of her race and gender and also defensively justify their actions in protecting the institution of slavery. To this, Geneva responds by directing them to the words of their white contemporaries who condemned the evils of slavery and also highlighted the great contradiction on display in the country we do not care what you think one delegate shouted while another suggested that we with the responsibility of forming a radically new government in perilous times see more clearly than is possible for you in hindsight that the unavoidable cost of our labors will be the need to accept and live with what you call a contradiction this delegate continued now walking slowly towards geneva while saying This contradiction is not lost on us. Surely we know, even though we are at pains not to mention it, that we have sacrificed the rights of some in the belief that this involuntary forfeiture is necessary to secure the rights for others in a society espousing, as its basic principle, the liberty of all. And after expressing remorse over Geneva's words about the grim future of blacks in the nation due to this compromise, the delegate asked, What alternative do we have? The Constitution will not obtain the signatures needed for ratification by the states if slavery isn't protected. For better or for worse, the delegate said, slavery has been the backbone of our economy, the source of much of our wealth. It was condoned in the colonies and recognized in the Articles of Confederation. The majority of delegates to this convention own slaves and must have that right protected if they and their states are to be included in the new government. And then pausing in a moment of frustration, he asked... What better compromise can you offer?" The room sits silently for a moment before Geneva Crenshaw responds by saying that the issue before these delegates concerning slavery wasn't a legislative one as much as a moral one. The North had been abolishing slavery, but what this room of delegates lacked wasn't legislative ability, but the moral courage to address slavery's evil. They truly believe that without protecting the enslavement of black people, the country's future was doubtful, it wouldn't survive. And so Geneva points out that it's these compromises that will ensure that the nation's survival will always be doubtful, not just in the present, but in the future. The racial division that these men would embed into the foundational fabric of the nation would always threaten to unravel the country. In a final effort to push back against Geneva Crenshaw's arguments, once and for all, a Southern delegate addressed by his colleagues as the Colonel approaches the podium speaking with a deep Southern accent. He justifies the compromise of the convention by saying that their circumstances for doing so in the present, namely the nation's survival, are much more justifiable than in later times when there are no threats to the nation and slavery still exists. The room shouted in agreement before the colonel proceeded to decry the entire issue as one of hypocrisy. Northern states frowned on slavery, but still profited from it. Virginia sought to end the importation of slaves ultimately so it could profit from having the most slaves, exactly 40% of all slaves in the colonies, along with increased property value. Washington, Jefferson, and Madison, all from Virginia, were some of the most vocal and eloquent voices on freedom and equality for the country, and yet they were all slaveholders. Overall, the Colonel's point is this. He says, we speak easily today of liberty, but the rise of liberty and equality in this country has been accompanied by the rise of slavery. And here, he points back to the colonial days of the early 17th century where European and African settlers came to the country as indentured servants, largely as a way for England to offload some of its large population of landless English workmen and prisoners. Many of those who came to the colony died, but for others, it became a place of opportunity and wealth. Blacks and whites were both indentured servants and free people, but eventually the numbers of freedmen, former indentured servants, who had no land or work began to increase, and because the overwhelming majority of them were single men, they became rebellious. And because they were already armed, due to protecting the colony from native attacks on land and European pirates on sea, they eventually turned on the leaders of the colony, something known as Bacon's Rebellion, and the outcome was a situation not unlike the Constitutional Compromise. The landowners paused on importing Englishmen as servants in an effort to reduce the potential for rebellions, and they started importing more African slaves as they were cheaper and who also couldn't purchase freedom and wouldn't be armed. In an effort to dispel the tensions between themselves and the largely white landless freedmen, the largely white landowners made reforms to the terms of indentured servanthood. In an effort to dispel the tensions between themselves and the largely white landless freedmen, the largely white landowners made reforms to the terms of indentured servanthood, making them longer, but they also made reforms in voting regulations, giving the freedmen the right to vote. In addition to this, tax increases by the king united the landowners and the freedmen in a struggle against the English. And whereas the tensions were once based on class, due to the mass importation of black slaves, white freedmen and white landowners were brought closer together and in a subtle shift that may not have even been intentionally based entirely on race, enslaved Africans became those at the lowest rung of the societal ladder. Overall, the enslavement and sacrificing of black people and their rights simultaneously made white landowners wealthier and white freedmen more empowered. This was the first compromise, and in an attempt to summarize the colonel's remarks, Geneva quotes Professor Edmund Morgan, who said, whereas the colonies were once a project that turned Africans and others into Englishmen, the rights of Englishmen were preserved by destroying the rights of Africans. Before the colonel took his seat, he thanked Geneva in amazement for summarizing his sentiments so concisely. After praising the Colonel's clarity, Geneva warned the delegates for the final time of the fallout that would ensure if they incorporated the evil of slavery into the nation's law. The delegates responded, While we may be inconsistent about the Negro problem, we are convinced that this is the only way open to us. You ask that we let your people go. We cannot do that and still preserve the potential of this nation for good. A potential that requires us to recognize here and now what later generations may condemn as evil and as we talk I wonder are the problems of race in your time equally paradoxical the local militia begins to gather outside rolling up a small cannon aimed at Geneva they ignited it and fired the cannonball roared and broke against the light shield leaving Miss Crenshaw unaffected the mission was over and she returned to the 20th century. We'll be back in a minute. The Chronicle of the Constitutional Contradiction is definitely one of Bell's most intriguing stories, and one of the things that makes it so compelling is Derek Bell's engagement with many of the actual delegates who were in the room, figuratively speaking. Everyone from George Washington to Governor Morris to Charles Pickney, based on their recorded words, it could be argued that they might have said many of the same things while in the convention meetings concerning slavery. The footnotes that are scattered throughout this story point to several historians who've expanded on this moment of the Constitutional Convention of 1787 to show that there was indeed a compromise being made in this room. There was, however overtly or covertly, a sacrificing of the rights and freedoms of black people for the founding and preservation of the country. And the point of the story is that because of how the country had already benefited so much from slavery there was no way these delegates were going to be convinced otherwise so when she's discussing the parable with Derek bell after telling it geneva says this she says if they believed as they had every reason to do that the country's survival required the economic advantage provided by the slave system then it was essential that slavery be recognized rationalized and protected in the country's basic law. It's as simple as that. Another observation Geneva makes is the familiarity of the entire situation, because these white male politicians are essentially the same as many white males and politicians today. And how even back then, even in the face of obvious racial bias in the laws and policies, everyone's so quick to absolve themselves from it and state that that's just the way it is. It's not personal. It's the way the system was set up, and it's either too much or too risky to change. But if this story has any element of truth to it, or if it points to the truth about racial bias in our past and present laws and policies, then it shows that systemic racism isn't always an unforeseen outcome that nobody's responsible for. It can be done intentionally with lasting repercussions. And so what this story is an illusion of is something that we mentioned in the previous episodes in the Space Trader story, Bell's concept of racial sacrifice covenants. According to Bell, a racial sacrifice covenant takes place when, to settle potentially costly differences between two opposing groups of whites, a compromise is effected that depends on the involuntary sacrifice of black rights or interests. We see that in two ways in this story. Chronologically, the first major racial sacrifice covenant that we see in the country takes place during the colonial era that the colonel references. And the main argument that Bell makes about black freedoms being sacrificed as a consequence stemming from the disputes between two groups of whites comes from historian and professor Edward Morgan, who wrote an article titled Slavery and Freedom, the American Paradox in the article morgan argues that the rise of liberty and equality in this country was accompanied by the rise of slavery as white landowners and white indentured servants in the colonies experienced tensions due to attacks from native americans and europeans rebellions occurred between the largely white landowners and the landless largely white freedmen Just as the story mentions, in an effort to dispel the tensions, the landowners began looking for cheaper and less rebellious laborers, which would be imported Africans, and they established lengthier terms of servitude while freedmen were given the right to vote. Although Morgan doesn't believe it was deliberate, it was Africans, already perceived as being racially inferior, whose freedoms were eventually sacrificed. So reflecting on this, Bell states that paradoxically, slavery for blacks led to both greater freedom for poor whites and an economic structure that would keep them poor. And although slavery would eventually come to an end, this pattern would continue, Bell says, as the economic disparities between rich and working class whites, camouflaged by racial division, continued unabated. So here were the unofficial origins of a racial subclass of people created by the colonists that would last all the way through the establishment of the nation slavery would go on for more than a century after the colonial era and just like the colonel mentioned in the story it became such a profitable institution that it could be said that slavery financed both the american revolution and american independence and although the colonies would eventually restrict the importing of slaves They didn't do very much to put an end to the institution of slavery. By 1776, slavery was an accepted piece of American society, and in spite of the efforts of abolitionists and even the opposition to slavery by many lower-class white laborers in the North, slavery remained, and eventually, when it was brought up in the Constitutional Convention of 1787, it was discussed more as an economic or political matter than a moral one. And so the next major racial sacrifice covenant, just like we saw in the story, was between the white delegates of northern states who opposed slavery, yet benefited from its presence in the south and its profits, and white southern delegates who wanted to ensure that the new government being formed would protect their property. Fearing that Southern delegates would pull out of the conversations if slavery wasn't protected, the framers proceeded to draft the Constitution with language that Bell says gave legitimacy to slavery and provided for its protection. They did so in 10 provisions that never actually used the word slave or slavery. And so, if you want to know where those 10 provisions are located in the Constitution, Bell lists them in a footnote in the story, and you can view them on page 34 of the PDF of the story at thespacetraderspod.com. But overall, the compromise that took place at the Constitutional Convention was a racial sacrifice covenant that intentionally or unintentionally sacrificed the hopes of black people for freedom and liberty ultimately so that whites of differing views could pursue establishing a nation that allegedly guaranteed liberty and freedom for all long before and long after but particularly during may through september of 1787 the american people fumbled the issue of slavery and failed black people both enslaved and free and what's often overlooked is that black people fully understood what was happening In a letter addressed to Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Banneker, a free black man and successful surveyor, wrote to Jefferson in 1791 about the contradiction between the statements about rights, liberty, and freedom contained in the Bill of Rights and Declaration of Independence and the status of enslaved blacks who were equal to whites in the country. In reminding Jefferson about the tyranny of the British who had placed the young nation in a state of servitude, Banneker told Jefferson to reflect on the fact that their actions of enslaving Africans were no different than the actions of the British which they detested. Banneker said, Sir, How pitiable it is to reflect that although you were so fully convinced of the benevolence of the father of mankind and of his equal and impartial distribution of those rights and privileges which he has conferred upon them, that you should at the same time counteract his mercies in detaining by fraud and violence so numerous a part of my brethren under groaning captivity and cruel oppression, that you should at the same time be found guilty of that most criminal act which you professedly detested in others with respect to yourselves. In the same speech from Frederick Douglass that I quoted from earlier, Douglass said that slavery, precisely what I have now denounced, is in fact guaranteed and sanctioned by the Constitution of the United States, that the right to hold and to hunt slaves is a part of that Constitution framed by the illustrious fathers of this republic. And in two separate speeches douglas said that the constitution was a stupendous sham and was made in the view of the existence of slavery and in a manner well calculated to aid and strengthen that heaven daring crime. and so when it comes to answering the question of who was the constitution written for this parable paints a vivid picture revealing that the framers of our founding documents didn't just unintentionally overlook black people but sacrificed their freedoms in the pursuit of preserving their hopes for the nation. And this was a pattern that Bell believed would persist throughout our nation's history and the paradox exists to this day. We'll be back in a minute. At the end of the parable, one of the last things the delegates asked Geneva Crenshaw is, Are the problems of race in your time equally paradoxical as the contradiction the framers were faced with in this story? Bell believes that the answer is yes. Although much progress in Ford movement has certainly been made for black Americans since the days of slavery, there's been a lot of retrenchment and negative effects that ultimately stem from the racial inequality embodied in and produced by slavery and this decision by the framers. In reflecting on the story, Bell tells Geneva that he has faith in the country to make continued progress, to which Geneva responds by saying, Faith is not foolishness, my friend, before quoting the scripture that Bell quotes more than anything in his writings, James 2.26, which says, Faith without works is dead. What Geneva, or rather Bell through Geneva, gets at is the misplaced hope of many who, while working to end racism in our country, particularly through the law, often settle for progress as a slow walk of gradualism. From here, Bell looks at statistics concerning the state of black America and concludes that in spite of the laws established for racial equality during the civil rights movement, millions of black Americans are really no better off than they were before the civil rights movement. To make his point, Bell cites data on the current state of black America, and while his stats are from the 80s, which is when he's writing this, not much has changed concerning the margin or the inequality gap between blacks and whites when it comes to areas such as housing, education, employment, earnings, benefits, credit, media, health care, and criminal justice. While there has been progress, either through increase or decrease in certain categories, the inequality gap persists or is even widened in some cases, even decades after civil rights legislation. For example, at the time that Bell wrote this story in 1984, the black unemployment rate was at 16%, coming down significantly from 21.7% the previous year and still nearly 5 percentage points higher than it was 10 years prior to that in 1974, while the white unemployment rate in 1984 was 6.5%. Currently, as of 2020, the black unemployment rate, according to the National Urban League, is at 6.1 percent compared to whites currently at 3.3 percent, with blacks still being twice as likely as whites to be unemployed. Well look at the median income for black families. In 1985, the median income for black families was $3,397. And the median income for white families was $39,135. In 2020, the median black household income was $41,361 compared to $70,642 in white households. Bell, quoting the National Urban League report from 1985, states that the median black family had about 56 cents to spend for every one dollar white families had to spend, which was two cents less than they had in 1980 and almost six cents less than they had in 1970. But currently, as of 2019, according to the Economic Policy Institute, the median black household earned just 61 cents for every dollar of income the median white household earned. When it comes to poverty, in 1984, 33.8% of blacks were living below the poverty line, while 11.5% of whites lived in poverty. In 2020, 18.7% of blacks were living below the poverty line, while only 7.3% of whites were living in poverty. The wealth gap between blacks and whites has widened again, with whites having a net worth greater than 13 times the net worth of blacks. And the margin between white and black homeownership is widening as well, as blacks have the lowest homeownership rate. Again, all of these stats are from the post-civil rights era, after legislation was passed that would end the harmful policies enacted against blacks during the Jim Crow era and strive for the goal of equal opportunity. And so while these figures are all affected by several economic factors, and certainly progress has been made, the inequality gap still persists. And at times, the margins have been worse than prior to the civil rights legislation. Why is this the case that in many economic categories, blacks continue to make progress, yet the inequality gap persists? Some argue that the morals and values of blacks have declined since the civil rights movement and that the way to decrease the inequality gap between blacks and whites comes from black people embracing personal responsibility and doing things such as getting an education, getting and staying married, staying out of jail and working a job. Many of these same people point to, and even at times weaponize against Blacks, the success of many Black people in society who continue to make upward mobility. Others, like Bell, would argue that despite the success of many Blacks, which should be praised, the negative conditions and economic inequality that many Blacks continue to face comes from a pattern of white retrenchment that, while making certain gains for Blacks in policy and law, never really addresses or changes in seeking to maintain a racial advantage for whites, a pattern that began in 1787. What's interesting is that while blacks continue to make progress, and while arguments of personal responsibility and values are put forth as the solution to economic inequality, the truth is that inequality exists even for working, well educated, middle class, and married black people who actually make up the majority of blacks in this country. In 2019, the Census Bureau reported that 80% of black America is in the range of working class to wealthy, 36% were earning a middle class income, and black median household income is around the highest that it's ever been. And yet, the inequality gaps between whites and blacks still persist. Concerning black unemployment, the EPI reports that only black workers with some college or more education have an unemployment rate lower than the overall unemployment rate of white workers, and that black college graduates are more likely than white college graduates to be employed in occupations that do not require a college degree. In his book, From Here to Equality, economist Sandy Darity states that, For comparable levels of socioeconomic status, black youth obtain more years of schooling and credentials, including college degrees, than white youth. He goes on to say that black household heads with a college or university degree have about $10,000 less in median net worth than white household heads who never completed high school. Blacks who are working full time have a lower median net worth than whites who are unemployed. Darity also points out how differences in family structure don't explain the inequality wealth gap between blacks and whites, stating that single white women with children have as high a median net worth as black women with no children. Single white parents have more than two times the wealth at the median of married black parents. The professed economic benefits associated with having the ideal family type do not translate into closure of the racial wealth gap. Being a stable, married, two-parent black family far from evens black and white wealth levels. So even though the rate of black two-parent households is the lowest it's ever been in our country. 36% 36% as of 2018, which is a decline from 53% in the mid-80s when Bell wrote this story. And black people are the least married out of any racial or ethnic group in America. This still isn't as much about personal responsibility and character values as much as it could be about discrimination and persisting inequality that has an effect on black life. Within black communities, there's a high value for healthy romantic relationships, marriage and family dynamics. And in one sense, perspectives on marriage and cohabitation have changed along with the rest of society in addition to declining marriage rates overall. In the place of marriage, the rate of cohabitation is increasing. The National Center for Family and Marriage at Bowling Green State University reports that from 1987 to 2017, the rates of cohabitation among black women ages 19 to 44 increased from 36 percent to 62 percent, which is similar to that seen among women from other racial groups. And the percentage of black women who are married is less than the percentage of women who are cohabitating. And this shows up in the high rate of black female-headed households and single-parent households, which make up 60% of all black households. Taking into account the rate of poverty, unemployment, and disparities in income, this affects black life as well, especially when it comes to black women marrying black men, who face higher rates of discrimination in the labor market, higher rates of incarceration, and many who, especially between the ages of 25 and 54, are just missing from society due to being victims of high crime, incarceration, or health issues. But even with these figures and the arguments about the absence of black men and fatherlessness in the black community, the reality is that while black men might appear statistically absent in census categories, that doesn't mean that black men as fathers aren't present in the homes or lives of their children, or aren't living with and co-parenting with their partners. They simply aren't represented statistically in marriage. It's been reported that roughly 60% of black fathers live with and are present in the lives of their children. So my point and maybe Bell's point is that unless you believe the racist lie that black people are inherently inferior, a lie believed by the framers of our Constitution, then what might be shown through these negative statistics is the subordinated conditions of a colonized people who've been subjected to a second class status that began with legal discrimination and persisted in patterns through the history of our country. Things like unemployment, high crime and incarceration, broken families, high abortion rates, and high rates of poverty might not reflect poor values as much as they do a broken and failed system that hasn't recognized or remediated the injustices that blacks have faced in this country. Racial discrimination might not be the only factor behind some of these disparities, as many whites are affected by some of the same economic realities. But it's a significant factor that cannot be ignored, especially if any real progress is going to continue to be made by closing or remediating the inequality gaps between blacks and whites in this country and actually moving towards the goal of equal opportunity promoted by civil rights legislation. But again, the question Bell's story asks of us is, where did this pattern begin? So where did the inequality gap come from? And why does it persist? Is it solely due to slavery and unchanging racial attitudes and discrimination against blacks? Is it due to moral issues or problematic behavior among black people? Is it perpetuated by racist politicians and prejudiced individuals or by societal patterns, policies and institutions that actively or passively sustain black subjugation? Bell quotes sociologist and professor William J. Wilson, who says... The pattern of racial oppression in the past created the huge black underclass, as the accumulation of disadvantages were passed on from generation to generation, and the technological and economic revolution of advanced industrial society combined to ensure it as a permanent status. So there's several factors involved, but overall, racial inequality in our country is a snowball effect that began with the creation of whiteness and blackness in the 15th century, along with the earliest settlers of our country and the fathers of our nation sacrificing the rights of black people for the preservation of the nation, consequently creating an entire subclass whose disadvantages and their effects have persisted, even as the overtly discriminatory policies and displays of interpersonal racism have decreased throughout the years. And so it's not a term that Bell uses a lot, or even at all. But the connection between the compromise and the contradiction of the Constitution's framers and the current subjected conditions of blacks in America has everything to do with systemic or institutional racism. That in light of our history as a country, there are and have been public policies, social or cultural patterns, and practices in the past or present that sustained or were created to perpetuate racial group inequity. And this isn't the belief that there's some hidden group of powerful racists running everything in society, and it's also different from the notion that everything in society that negatively impacts black people or minorities is automatically racist. This story, and maybe even the continuing conversations about race in America, aren't as much about the individual racism or racist actions carried out against blacks or racial minorities that many believe has been or needs to be remedied before equality can be achieved. But rather, it's about the subordinated situations and conditions of inequality that blacks experience in this country and how to address or get rid of those conditions before true equality can be achieved. Bell doesn't see this pattern changing or being remedied, even though the hope remains for many who celebrate the slow gradualism of progress. As the inequality gap persists negatively affecting multitudes of black people in this country, Bell makes the observation that it's these people who at times fare worse than their ancestors, statistically speaking, who are protected by more expansive civil rights laws than their ancestors. That's what Bell's work speaks to as he addresses racism's presence in the law, and it's also how many blacks, especially after the civil rights movement, spoke against the continuing racism in society. I'll leave you with this quote from political activist Kwame Ture, also known as Stokely Carmichael, who, in 1967, said this in his book, Black Power, Politics of Liberation. When white terrorists bomb a black church and kill five children, that is an act of individual racism, widely deplored by most segments of the society. But when in that same city, Birmingham, Alabama, 500 black babies die each year because of the lack of power, food, shelter, and medical facilities, and thousands more are destroyed and maimed physically, emotionally, and intellectually because of conditions of poverty and discrimination in the black community, that is a function of institutional racism. When a black family moves into a home in a white neighborhood and is stoned, burned, or routed out, they are victims of an overact act of individual racism, which most people will condemn. But it is institutional racism that keeps black people locked in, dilapidated slum tenements, subject to the daily prey of exploitative slumlords, merchants, loan sharks, and discriminatory real estate agents. The society either pretends it does not know of this latter situation, or is in fact incapable of doing anything meaningful about it. crenshaw makes two big takeaways from the story the first the real problem of race in america is the unresolved contradiction embedded in the constitution and never openly examined owing to the self-interested attachment of some citizens of this nation to certain myths the second the men who drafted the constitution however gifted or remembered as great were politicians not so different from the politicians of our own time and like them had to resolve by compromise conflicting interests in order to preserve both their fortunes and their new nation. As always, with these stories written by Derek Bell, let's consider his perspective. If the Constitution's framers overlooked or deliberately sought to protect an institution as evil as slavery for the sake of the nation's preservation, what kind of precedent did that set for our country? And what would it take to undo these effects? Well, that's a wrap for this episode. Thanks for listening. And please reach out, leave a rating, leave a review on iTunes. I'd really appreciate any and all feedback. And hopefully the next episode will be up in a few weeks. We'll see you later.